I met Alex Gibney years ago when I was at Fortune magazine, and some of the reporters there, Bethany McLean and Peter Elkheim, were working on that groundbreaking Enron story. And they did the smartest guys in the room. It got turned into a book. They won all these awards. And then they decided to make it into a documentary film. And they brought in this guy, Alex Gibney. And he had this ambition and this vision. And I thought it was super cool what he wanted to do. The thing about Alex Gibney is that he's really kind of made his bones doing documentary films about business frauds primarily. I mean, or business people who had two sides to them. I won't say it's always frauds because Steve Jobs certainly wasn't a fraud. He was a guy, though, who had a dark side, and Alex wanted to explore that. And then there were things like Enron, like Elizabeth Holmes, stories like that, and then Lance Armstrong and WikiLeaks, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's always things that, you know, had two sides to them. It's really important in the work that Alex does because he explains these complicated figures to us, um, people who are in the news. And, and I think it reminds us over and over again that it's not just black and white. You know, people are nuanced. They're complicated. You know, they have these dark sides, but they often come from good intentions. And then they somehow stray off this road and fall into a pit. And you wonder, gee, how did it happen? And that's what Alex Gibney explains. Oscar award-winning documentary filmmaker whose newest HBO film is The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, which is about Elizabeth Holmes, the now disgraced former CEO of Theranos. Alex, great to see you. Andy, great to be here. So tell us about how you decided to make this film about Elizabeth Holmes. Interestingly, it was suggested to me by two fairly powerful executives, uh, Richard Plepler at HBO and, and Graydon Carter, both of whom had been big admirers of Elizabeth Holmes. And I think Richard initially wanted to do a kind of follow doc to show her greatness. But then the worm turned, and not too long after the Wall Street Journal pieces came out, Richard said, why don't you take it on? And I said, it sounds like a good story. So she's obviously a fascinating character. What do you think it is about her that resonates so much with us? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, I think we're fascinated by fraud. And I think we're also fascinated by fraud in, um, when it comes in a package that seems to be so noble and compelling. Um, and Elizabeth was that. I mean, she presented herself as this very young dropout, 20 years old. She starts her company. Um, and... Uh, and she's brilliant, and she makes something of herself, and now she's a billionaire, and she's the next Steve Jobs. All of that seems so um, compelling, but the idea that that was all somehow a fraud, I think, is fascinating to people. And the question is, did she know she was perpetuating a fraud, or was there something more mysterious going on? I mean, that's kind of a central question, and people debated that when I was leaving the screening. In other words, did she believe her own lies, right. or was she knowingly telling, not telling the truth. What do you think? I think she is uh, afflicted with what the police call noble cause corruption. Meaning, simply put, it's like the end justifies the means. She had a mission, and she thought it was a noble mission, this blood testing device that was going to democratize blood testing. And, uh, and I think she also had a, a vision of herself and what role she was going to play. Um, she was so invested in that that she thought along the way, if things go wrong, it's okay if I fudge here, fudge there, 
because after all, my, my mission is so important. Um, but, sh but over time, the, the distance between the mission and reality grew and grew and grew until it was outright fraud. So I, I, think, it's, I, I think it's one of those things where if you believe you're lying for a good cause, you can do it very effectively. I mean, some people have said, for instance, maybe this is taking things farther than I should, but hear me out, that President Trump tells lies, doesn't know he's lying. My father was born in Germany. Um, is there a similarity there? I think there is a similarity, though I think Trump is really off the scale because, you know, he is, he, it's almost hard to call what he does lies because he'll say whatever is beneficial to him at that moment. And I don't think he really cares whether it's a lie or it's truth. I think Elizabeth Holmes, if you really confronted her and said, is this machine working? You know, if you got her someplace away in a private place, she would probably say, no, it, it, it's really not. But in, in public, she would maintain it was, and she'd probably concoct elaborate rationalizations in her mind about how it was working, even though she damn well knew it wasn't. You compared her to Thomas Edison in the film. How's that? <laughs> well, we call Thomas Edison, this is not original to me, there's a guy named Randall Strauss who wrote a wonderful book called The Wizard of Menlo Park. But um, he was the original fake it till you make it guy. Now, he was different than Elizabeth Holmes in that he ultimately did make it. He was an inventor who got it right. But a lot of what he invented, meaning made up, was his own place in the world, his own sense of celebrity, and, uh, you know, the all-powerful nature of that. And along the way, when he was having trouble with the incandescent light bulb, he didn't let anybody in on that. He faked demonstrations. He bought journalists off with uh, stock in his company. You know, he, he lied. And, and in that, he was not so dissimilar from other famous people in Silicon Valley, like, say, Steve Jobs, who was a notorious liar. Um, but also a great storyteller. So she's in that tradition, and that's what makes Elizabeth Holmes interesting. She's not sui generis. She's part of a tradition of fake it till you make it, which to some extent is celebrated in Silicon Valley, but not so much when it comes to um, medical devices that can actually affect the health of people. And ultimately, you do have to make it. Yes, you right? do. There's that part of the There's equation that as part well. That right. actually has to work. Yes. You had some incredible footage of Elizabeth Holmes in the film. How did you get that? Was that your own, or did you find that somewhere? So we went to her right off the bat, and my producer sat down with her for five hours off the record. But, you know, she never agreed to talk. She kept saying, when we're back on top, then you can come visit us. Well, she never got back on top. So we were faced with a problem, which was, how do you show the fraud from the inside out? And um, it was difficult for a long time, but then we got a break. Very late in the game, we got somebody who had been at Theranos, who leaked us over 100 hours of footage from inside the company. So that's, <laughs> that's how we got a lot of that footage. The other thing that was an impediment to us was that many people were unwilling to talk to us because they were so terrified of Theranos' um, lawyer, David, David Boyce. Boyce. Yes, who achieved a lot of notoriety in his rather ruthless defense of uh, Harvey Weinstein. Right. How did you overcome that? Well, over time, you know, as, as the company got weaker, um, people got braver. And also, you know, like, as you know very well, over time you convince people to trust you. 
and, and that's ultimately what we did. The other person who was very helpful to us was John Carreyrou. John Carreyrou, the Wall Street Journal reporter who really broke the fraud story, you know, had developed a tremendous loyalty with some of his sources. And once he came on board and saw what we were doing and, and appreciated it, he, he gave a nod to some of the folks that talked to us. There are a number of other uh, film projects, Alex, about Elizabeth Holmes. Is, yeah. is that, as a filmmaker, is that a good thing, a bad thing? How do you look at all these it's other a projects? Little bit of, it's a little bit of both. I mean, look, it's fair game. Any, anybody can go after a story, as you know. Um, but in some cases, you know, people piggyback off of stuff you do, and, and it can't help but, but uh, you know, irk you. That said, I think all the attention was ultimately good you know, because it created this kind of cultural moment of interest in Elizabeth Holmes in this story, which I do find fascinating. And I'm not sure I entirely understand it. There's a thing now, you can go on Twitter, you know, hashtag Theranos Thursdays, and people dress up like Elizabeth Holmes. Get out of here. Yeah, really? Yeah, check it out. I mean, she is some sort of cultural icon or a negative cultural icon. Right. I mean, this, the, there's a Hollywood film. I think yes. there may be even two of them. Well, no. Holly, there's, well, no, there's, there's a, a one with Jennifer Lawrence. There's a Hulu Lawrence. series, which right. was just announced. Right. And then there's um, the Adam McKay film right. uh, starring Jennifer Lawrence, which uh, there's a script, I guess, has either been completed or is about to be completed by Valerie Taylor. So that seems to be moving forward. Crazy. And then there was a, a podcast. Right. Right. And I guess the Hulu series is based on the podcast. And Elizabeth Holmes is out there. She has a, a boyfriend. Someone remarked that maybe the boyfriend doesn't get HBO. Um, <laughs> <laughs> are you aware of that? I am. I mean, I, you know, I don't, uh, I know only what I've read. But, yeah, she's got a boyfriend. She traded the much older boyfriend, Sonny Balwani, who was her COO, for the much younger boyfriend, uh, who was apparently um, involved in a uh, smart car startup. Of course. What do you think is going to happen to her? I think ultimately she'll be indicted. Uh, I mean, sorry, she has been indicted. Yeah. I think ultimately she'll be convicted is what I meant to say. And where does that stand? Uh, the so legal? we're waiting for a trial date is where it stands at the moment. And both she and Sonny Balwani have been indicted by right. the federal government. And if convicted, they could each see about 20 years in jail. So news organizations, maybe even like this one, Yahoo Finance, and where I worked previously at Fortune magazine, um, sometimes lionize these CEOs and Silicon Valley. Do you think that this new sort of um, thinking from, say, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are throwing cold water on the notion of the superstar CEO? I hope so. Honestly, I think the whole idea of the superstar CEO has gotten way too much attention. And you can see it in the pay scales, too. It's just so outsized. Nobody um, deserves that kind of disparity of income. Nobody is that good, in my, in my view. And, and furthermore, what you often see, and, and I say this you know, on the heels of uh, an indictment of Martin Winterkorn, the former CEO of Volkswagen, you know, when corruption or scandal or fraud comes a calling, suddenly the CEO is like, I didn't know anything about it. And you think, well, what are you getting all that money for then? No shortage of possible subjects for you. Um, speaking of that, so how do you decide what to make films about? That's a good question, and it's usually a combination of projects that are brought to me and ones that I find. But the ones that interest me are not just ones that are about important themes, but ones which are great stories. I mean, if you're in the storytelling business, and that's the business I'm in, you look for great stories. And Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos was a great story. 
What do you think your, your body of work says about you, Alex? I mean, looking at <laughs> Enron, WikiLeaks, Scientology, Lance Armstrong. Well, what does that say? I mean, I'm interested in fraud and abuses of power. And also, uh, fortunately for me, um, you know, there's no shortage of sociopathic narcissists who, <laughs> <laughs> who are at the center of these stories. So, you know, I think that... Um, I, I, I really am interested in fraud and abuses of power because it's such a betrayal of trust. Um, and that idea of trust is important, particularly in business, because it has more to do with how business works than we think. We like to think that, you know, business is about a, a, a very sort of rational equation of risk and reward. But really it's about belief. You know, as I say in the film, I think um, credit is uh, derived from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. So it's really, you know, business is about trust, and if you betray someone's trust, what could be worse than that? Yeah, I mean, you, and you have done a lot of business stars, stories like Enron, Elizabeth Holmes, and Steve Jobs. So you mentioned Steve Jobs. What was it about him in particular? I mean, he's very complicated in that he was someone who did not always tell the truth, but wildly successful and obviously had a huge impact on our lives and society. So I think the most interesting thing about Steve Jobs and something he shares with Elizabeth Holmes is that he was a storyteller. That, I think, was his great talent. He could tell the story of Apple in a way that was compelling for people. Thousand songs in your pocket. You know, that was really his, because he wasn't an inventor. You know, I mean, I mean, in the in the mechanical sense of the word, he right. was an inventor in the in the way he kind of made up stories that people like to consume. But I think the other valuable thing about Steve Jobs, and what he got right and what Elizabeth Holmes got wrong, is he learned from mistakes ultimately. And Apple 2.0, the Apple that the, that gave us the iPhone and the iPad and all of that, really came out of a number of terrible mistakes. You know, him getting tossed out of Apple initially, the next debacle. And then he surrounded himself with a core group of people who were not afraid to tell him no to his face. And he was, by that point, able to take criticism and, and to correct mistakes that he had made. So I think Steve Jobs learned over time that he wasn't perfect um, and he wasn't all powerful and that he needed to, to surround himself with a core group of people who really knew what they were doing. He would take care of telling the story. And Enron, where you worked with Bethany McLean and yep. Peter Elkind, um, the smartest guys in the room, that was kind of a watershed moment for you because it sort of took you to the next level in your career. It did. And Jeff Skilling just let out of jail recently. What are your thoughts there? Well, look, Jeff Skilling got a long sentence, 24 years. Now, ultimately, it was reduced somewhat, you know, on appeal. But that's a big sentence. So Skilling paid a pretty heavy price. Um, and it was a big fraud, so justifiably so. But it was one of those rare cases where a, C, where, where a, a, a key executive is actually punished yeah, no one from the financial crisis of 2008, Nobody. 2009 thrown in jail. Correct. Surprise you? Yeah, it shocks me. And, and I think it's outrageous because we know how much um, bad stuff went on and, and, and at what cost. I mean, we throw kids in jail for stealing TV sets and they can go down for five, ten years. And people who lose billions or maybe trillions of, of value, somehow they're above the law. It seems crazy to me. Did Madoff ever attract you to do Madoff a Madoff actually of didn't attract me, and here's why. I'm interested in these people that 
are afflicted, as I say, with this noble cause corruption, which makes them more like us. That is to say, they make a kind of gamble. They have a vision of what they want to accomplish, but they let their vision corrupt them, right? And Madoff, I thought, was always running a scam. Right, just a crook. Just a crook. So that didn't interest me as much as these characters, because I think even Skilling, you know, Skilling in a way was a true believer in the Enron mission. Right. But where he took it into fraud was, it's like he couldn't stand the idea that Enron would fail. Right. So he kept coming up or allowing for these special purpose entities that would hide all the debt and imagine that some way, some, somehow in the future, you know, it would be the bottom of the ninth and they'd be down by 500 runs, but they could still come back and win the game. All right, let's get into your head a little bit, Alex. I mean, you're an anti-authoritarianist, <laughs> right, anti yeah. it seems, and yet you grew up very much within the establishment, went to prep school, went to Yale, your parents were establishment uh, people in a sense. Since my dad was a journalist, which makes him not quite establishment, but... Right, so it, where did all this come from? Well, I think, it, it, you know, my mom was a was a very much of a fear, free spirit. My dad was um, a journalist at Time, Life, Newsweek, um, but he had a, a very bad career plan, which was most people to advance suck up and kick down. My dad kicked down, an, uh, sorry, most people when they're planning a career suck up and kick down. My dad sucked down and kicked up, okay. which got him fired right. for, from a lot of very important um, journalistic organizations. So he was in his own way, had problems with authority. And my stepfather was uh, William Sloan Coffin Jr., who's very much of um, uh, a civil rights activist, yep. anti-Vietnam War activist, um, anti-nuclear activist, and somebody who looked at um, at flaws in the world and tried to correct them, tried to make the world a better place. So I think from those folks, I got a sense of, um, you know, looking at abuses of power and, if I could, trying to make the world a better place. And working within the system, generally speaking. Generally speaking. Right, yeah. Um, interesting. So, uh, WikiLeaks, what is your reaction to the news of Ecuador retracting uh, Julian Assange's asylum and the U.S. indictment? Okay, so in a way, that's very complicated for me. You know, I, I made a film about Assange. Right. It's not surprising, really, that he got thrown out of the Ecuadorian embassy because he was, <laughs> he was maybe the worst possible guest. And when you start attacking your host and also using the Ecuadorian embassy to launch attacks on other countries, um, it becomes a problem. So it's not surprising at tossed. If we're, uh, I am concerned about the U.S. indictment, because mm -hmm. while it's uh, on the surface focused on hacking, um, it's um, the conspiracy that underlies that indictment has a lot to do with journalism as it's normally practiced. So I think an extradition in this context poses some real risks for free speech. If it were up to me and I were king of the world, he would be extradited to Sweden to face those rape charges that he avoided by going to the Ecuadorian embassy. That's the issue that kind of gets lost in the talk about Julian Assange. Did the WikiLeaks people attack your film? They did. They sure did. They issued a, um, a long, um, I can't even remember what it's called now, but a hugely long document 
initially, <laughs> um, they they neglected to 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 put a lot of important information in there because they only had an audio tape, not the videotape, and didn't include all the chats of Chelsea Manning, which left out most of the film. So are WikiLeaks and Julian Assange good guys, bad guys? It's complicated. Yeah. I'm. Um, and and I'm kind of in the business of not doing the thumbs up, thumbs yep. down, good guy, bad guy routine. I think some of what Julian Assange originally did in terms of publishing um, classified documents, which had important public value, and also that, that, that video that he posted called Collateral Murder, those were hugely important. Now, mind you, he did a lot of that um, in ways that put people at risk. He didn't properly redact, and that would become a problem over time. But also, a lot of his bad personal behavior, he tried to hide by masking himself in the man or wrapping himself in the mantle of free speech and transparency, like the sexual problems in Sweden, for example. And then later on would use a platform like WikiLeaks as a means for settling private scores, right. you know, ad animus toward Hillary Clinton. Right. So I think he's a terrible avatar for the transparency movement. But what he initially did in terms of a transnational publishing platform for documents was terribly important. So documentaries, Alex, seem to be much more important these days. I mean, there's your work, Michael Moore, Errol Morris. All of you guys have been working for decades, by the way, but now you've all sort of come to the fore. Why is that? Good question. <laughs> I, I think in part, you know, weirdly, I think some of it has to do with reality television. Over time, people got used to the idea that you could watch people who weren't actors and be engaged. But I also think that documentary storytelling got a lot better in the last 15 years, and Errol Morris would be a, you know, a, a key character who, who helped advance the form with his movie Thin Blue Line. Um, you know, documentary storytelling has gotten much better, and documentary stories being real stories can sometimes be stranger and more entertaining and engaging than fiction. And these are opinionated works for the most yes, part. Yes, they're right? authored works. I like to think of them as, as like, um, like nonfiction books. You can hear the voice of the author. And you narrate yours. I do. I narrate mine. And I try to do so in a kind of a first-person way, not overly intrusive. But it's not the voice of God, mm -hmm. like those old NBC white papers. It's the voice of Alex, which is somewhat lesser. Or not David McCullough. Right, correct. Which is, I mean, what Ken Burns is doing, these are different from what Ken was doing. That's I right. I mean, I, I think Ken's vision of how he presents the world is a kind of, you know, they're authored, but it, it, the presentation feels like this is the master narrative. Right, right. So much content out there today. I mean, you hear a lot about peak content. I want to talk to you about HBO and Netflix, too, a little bit. But sure. what, what is your take on this right now? I mean, at the moment for uh, a documentary producer-director, it's great. Because suddenly, instead of that world where you had to seek the lowest common denominator because you were seeking advertisers, you were renting viewers to advertisers, now people are purchasing content. They're going to channels or streaming services to buy content. So you're selling that content directly, which is a much better model than uh, renting viewers to advertisers. You mentioned Richard Plepler, and 
he was actually, the news that he was leaving HBO actually broke the night of your premiere. I, I broke it, I And believe. you broke it, yeah, I was there and everyone was shocked and he wasn't there. Um, are you concerned about him leaving and other executives leaving in terms of the direction of HBO? Look, Richard uh, was a great executive and presided over a tremendous you know, outburst of creativity at HBO. So of course, when somebody like that leaves, you are concerned. As, as for the future, you know, it's hard to say. You know, AT&T has made it known it wants to be on more platforms and so forth and so on. You know, my only concern is will the executives at the top, at HBO or at Netflix or, or anywhere, you know, care more about the quality of the content than the, than the proverbial bottom line? Is Netflix a good thing? I think Netflix has been a good thing. Um, you know, uh, there are problems with Netflix too, but, you know, Netflix... One of the interesting things about Netflix, provided it doesn't go too far, is that they perceived audiences not as a mass audience, but as communities of interest. And so they could make money by um, focus, you know, focusing on a smaller number of eyeballs, but that those people would, would look at those things faithfully, like food programming, or let's say, um, you know, we have a series called Dirty Money on Netflix, and it's all about corporate crime. Well, people... Uh, you know, that's exploded for Netflix because it turns out there are a lot, with the power of massive, you know, um, international, multinational, global corporations, um, people are very concerned right. <laughs> as to, you know, what they're doing. Speaking of big companies, what is your take on Facebook and Google and Twitter, the social media platforms and their impact on society? So I'm hugely concerned. I, I think Facebook in particular, but also Twitter, you know, they exacerbate uh, vitriol in a way that Fox News, you know, could only dream of. And Fox News is, is, is really awful at that. I mean, I mean, they're good at it, but I mean, in a really awful way in terms of monetizing vitriol. And it seems to me that's what a lot of uh, the model now of Facebook and, and, and Twitter is all about, is communities of vitriol. I mean, that's really scary for me. I think the other thing that is really concerning is what Facebook and Google, by aggregating all of this advertising revenue, have done to eviscerate journalism. Um, that is really concerning. And also, they're taking our personal data. Well, at what point do we get compensated for all the personal data that Google and Facebook are selling? Right, right. Um, what about President Trump's war on the media and fake news? How does that impact what you do? Uh, it puts a bit of steel up my spine and makes me feel that what I do is really important. You know, fascist leaders, and I use that term advisedly, tend to want to create a narrative that all news is false except for the news that they proclaim. Um, and I think Trump is in that tradition. He's trying to discredit all forms of news so that the only thing that people will listen to is the stuff that comes from his bully pulpit. You are branching out into um, scripted series, other kinds of works. Your, your company is growing. What are you up to? What's on the drawing board? And how do you decide where to, where to move the company? I mean, look... One of the things about uh, my company that's been really interesting and uh, fantastic for me is that we've become a vehicle for a lot of very talented young people who are getting to make movies 
and doing it their way, not our way. We don't have a house style. So, so being a kind of incubator for talent has been a, a, a tremendous uh, thing for, for me. It's, it's great to see people much smarter, more talented than I kind of take off. But I think, you know, in this world where um, there are a tremendous number of valuable stories that are real-life nonfiction stories, there's the documentary form, there's maybe short form we're getting interested in, podcasts, and also scripted. Um, right. but, but mostly, from our standpoint, nonfiction stories, like The Looming Tower was one we produced um, based on the, on the nonfiction book by Lawrence Wright. But you did an episode of Billions. I did. I directed an episode of Billions. That was kind of a warm-up for me. Mm -hmm. uh, it was fun doing Billions. Those actors are just uh, you know, a dream to work with. You have a scripted series or film in the works with HBO? Uh, we, we're developing one with HBO and also um, another one with another company. So we're, we're, we're out there and things seem to be working. And you're seeding younger people to work as part of your company? Is that how it works? Very much so. Yeah. I mean, okay. and, but, but like I say, in a way that lets them kind of follow their path rather than say than, than create a house style. As I mentioned, your career has sort of taken many decades to sort of get this level of traction. <laughs> My right? wife would agree. It's like, what, what took you so long? Right. What, what is it that kept you going? Um, fear. And, and, and I kind of ramped it up once I had kids. I suddenly looked around and I thought, wow, I'm really going to have to put some food on the table. But I, I believed that if I worked hard enough, I could get someplace good. Um, and, um, and then I got a break. Uh, what, is they, what, what is that, the, that old sports aphorism? Luck is where opportunity meets the prepared mind. Mm -hmm. So I had an opportunity, and that was the Enron film, actually. And I delivered on it. Right. And finally, Alex... This uh, program is about influencers, so my question to you is, how do you intend to use, or are you using your influence on the world at this point? We've done a lot of work on rooting out stories of fraud and malfeasance. I'm trying to turn in a direction of celebrating people who are doing good. And that, I guess, would be my focus in the future. I mean, even in a story like Theranos, I like to tell people, while Elizabeth Holmes is the main character, there are a lot of subsidiary characters in that film who are hugely admirable. Um, the whistleblowers, um, Phyllis Gardner from Stanford, who, who saw through the fraud early and is, a, is an exemplary figure. So we're now focusing a little bit more on stories um, that celebrate people doing good. That said, we haven't given up our day job in terms of going after people who do bad. Theranos, the Theranos story really, you know, was an important story when I was the editor of Fortune magazine. One of our writers, Roger Parloff, worked on a story, and we ended up putting her on the cover um, to our great regret because it turned out, of course, that she wasn't all that she was cranked up to be. And it really, you know, was kind of devastating to us, uh, to me as the editor and to Roger Parloff as the writer, when it really became clear that Elizabeth Holmes was a fraud. When I saw the HBO film that Alex made about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes at the HBO screening, um, I, I was just grinning ear to ear because it was just exactly what happened. Um, it also brought the story back to me because as editor of Fortune, you know, I oversaw the, the, a story that 
was done about her that was laudatory. And I kept cringing and saying, oh, that's where we got it wrong. That's where we got it wrong. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at SirWork.